And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, at least on this show, all kinds of things can happen and continue to happen and continue. Do you know we've had fires going on out here, major wildfires burning thousands of acres for over two months? And every time the wind shifts and the smog and the smoke and the toxic stuff kind of gets into this canyon, um, I'm kind of down for the count. So I want to apologize for last night. And uh, I have no idea when they're going to get this thing under control. But uh, it, it really is almost one of those Tennessee Ernie Ford lines where, you know, God willing and the creek don't rise. Well, in this case, it's God willing and the wind don't shift. So, um, I think we're okay for tonight, but uh, until they get this uh, until they get this fire situation under control, um, we're probably going to have some other interim outs here, so we will try to steer among the Shriptus and the other guy and uh, uh, continue to do what we're trying to do, which is to shed illumination on some very, very murky things. I mean, tonight's topic, tonight's subject is something that I've kind of been building toward for a while. Uh, I'm going to share with you some unusual data, which I have been quietly pursuing, separate from what my uh, guests are going to talk about. And we're going to kind of at the end of the next three hours, we're going to pool our resources and see if um, independently we've kind of all arrived at the same page. Until then, um, let me go through some news items because there's some really important stuff happening uh, around the world and in the rest of the United States. First of all, if you are new to the show, we have a section called Radio with Pictures where um, basically I stole that from RKO back when Robin and I had a development deal at RKO to do a film version of the discovery of the face on Mars, etc., etc., and maybe someday that will be resurrected. Anyway, so I kind of was involved with RKO, and I love their idea of uh, radio pictures. And then I thought, maybe if we just modify that. So rather than have unending streams of TV stuff of you and me looking at each other in cameras, I decided that radio required good audio, good visual description, because it is radio, but for those that like a picture, to want to see a reference or a website or a, a documentation of something that has been said, a section where we can put those things and you can go either during the show or after the show, or when you're listening to the uh, Club 19.5 archive, that that would be a meaningful part of what we're trying to do here. So we created Radio with Pictures. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner which says very dramatically with a picture which is uh, really weird, has Earth been silently invaded? That's for tonight, which is Sunday, uh, January 5th, um, here in the Western Hemisphere. What you want to do is click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page banner, you'll see three names, Richard, John, and Georgia tonight. Click on my name. That takes you down to my news items. Item number one, we are getting ready as a society, as a culture, 
as a planet, we are getting ready to go back to the moon. And I can sit here with absolute certainty tonight and tell you that when that happens, everything is going to change. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the public perception of the moon is going to dramatically shift because even the first images from the Artemis unmanned mission, which is going to be launched into a, I think, two-way, um, uh, two-week, two I'm sorry, two-week orbit around the moon in the next uh, uh, month or two, uh, is going to usher in visually some stunning stuff. Now, I'm predicating this on the idea that we are light years past the capability of NASA to basically intervene and censor all the stunning live high-def video we're going to be getting from the Artemis mission, from the Orion spacecraft that will be orbiting the moon and looking at new sites, looking at the orbital mechanics for the gateway part of the Artemis program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that some of this new video, this incredible high resolution video, as well as images, will make it into the internet and all around the world. That's the best case scenario. Because if that happens, life is going to change. Why? Because there's stuff there. Amazing, mind-blowing stuff built by somebody. And we have an idea based on all our research as to whom. But that's going to kind of unfold if these images go public. Now, let's assume worst, worst, worst case scenario. The NASA tries to do exactly what it did for decades around Apollo, around Lunar Orbiter, around, uh, you know, Lunar Prospector, around the, uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Observer, that they're going to try to censor the data. That's where Elon Musk comes in. Because he, in the next couple of years, if not sooner, you can never really depend on Musk for a timeline because things change, he's going to be sending private citizens in a private spacecraft on a private rocket, the Starship. He's going to be sending eight average human beings. I don't mean that in terms of their skills or perception, but their background that will not be part of the military-industrial complex. In fact, he's looking to have an artist, a billionaire from Japan, lead this party of eight or nine, or I forget what the number is, of uh, tourists who will basically spend many days, if not a couple weeks, orbiting the moon, taking as many selfies as possible, and looking at it with all kinds of cameras and video and other sensors. And in other words, back to the idea of the founding fathers, which is competition. How do you get truth in a melange of a society? You have competing factions and forces and spokespeople and experiencers, and the First Amendment allows them to tell their story. So, if NASA doesn't give us the truth, Elon Musk may, I say that with a caveat, and if Elon doesn't, 
there's a whole bunch of other private players come out very fast on the inside track using racetrack metaphors mercilessly, which are going to be sending little teeny tiny CubeSat spacecraft to orbit the moon on, you know, piggybacked on other private missions. So the idea that anybody can control every real image of the stunning real stuff that will be visible on current state-of-the-art digital imaging cameras and other technology, it's not going to happen. At some point, the real stuff will leak through. And then, as my uh, grandmother used to say, it will be Katie Bar the door. Now, this all kicks off tomorrow morning, literally uh, an hour from the end of, no, two hours from the end of our show, when NASA once again opens those huge payload bay doors in the vertical assembly building or the vehicle assembly building there in uh, Florida, and slowly on this giant crawler, like with the Saturn V decades ago, they roll the Artemis uh, space launch system mission number one rocket, this huge mega rocket and spacecraft to the pad over the next several hours, uh, maybe six, eight hours. I forget how long the trip takes. They, their max speed is like, you know, two miles an hour down those big, broad, gravel-strewn highways they built to take the weight of the, uh, of the rocket carrier, the, the crawler. Anyway, um, all that will culminate tomorrow, and then they will do what's called the countdown demonstration test where they fill the tanks with fuel, in this case, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and um, they uh, count the count, they bring the countdown right down to T minus zero, and then they stop. And they drain everything, and they go back, and they look at all their data, and then they decide if everything is, is okay. And the last test was not. They had many issues to solve, so they had to roll it back into the, ver- the vehicle assembly building. Um, they will tell us at the end of this test, probably in maybe a week or two, when they're going to schedule the actual launch. And that launch, even though it's unmanned, not only carries tons of cameras, but it also will carry several CubeSats into lunar orbit, some of which also have cameras. So what are we going to see? That's not, you know, a rhetorical question. It's a real question because we know it's there based on decades of research that we have done. We know what could be photographed if, you know, the game wasn't rigged. The question now is going to be, is the game going to be rigged? Will they hold out to the last, you know, starving NASA technician before they show us what the moon really is and how it can incredibly, positively change the destiny of humans here on Earth? That kind of is the backdrop to our conversation this morning, so uh, things could get quite interesting. Let me ask a couple of very dumb questions on the air, given that we've been having some uh, technical difficulties behind the scenes. Do we have uh, Dr. Solheim with us yet? I don't think we do. Okay. Do we have John Womack with us? Because he is... uh, uh, going to be one of our guests. I, I think we we do have Ron Gerbron. Ron, if you can make a little noise, let us know you're there. 
Are you there? Mr. Gerbron. Mute. There you are. Uh, um, yeah, muting. Just super. Muting. Okay. Hey, okay. Hey. And there's Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the other side of midnight. I will get to detailed backgrounds on everybody when it's appropriate, but resuming the news, just so I know you're all kind of waiting there in the wings, uh, item number two, as you know, for the last um, several months since last Christmas, we've been posting web updates. Well, they're now into the detailed testing of the uh, one of the instruments called the Near Infrared uh, Imaging Slicing Spectrometer. And the detail, the background of what that gadget does and how important it is to the overall web mission is there in item number two. Item number three is where web is. That's kind of a perennial. We keep it up there so you can kind of monitor progress. Number four. Now, this is a really interesting backdrop to tonight's conversation. Remember, I've been saying for many, many years that what's going to have to happen because of the hyperdimensional physics model is there has to be basically an overall astronomical revolution, not only in astrophysics, which is what makes stars shine, how they form, how planets form, how planets function, etc., etc., but everything up to and including how galaxies form, how they're fleeing from us from an imaginary center where we're supposed to be at uh, up to the speed of light because of the uh, redshift measurements and the so-called uh, Big Bang model of the expansion of the universe. All of that, I have been saying for a long, long time, is going to be called into fundamental question when astronomers and astrophysicists and the money that funds them, which most of it now comes from the government, changes from keep the real stuff secret to, okay, it's time to let the real stuff hang out. So item number three, this is a very important article. Read it carefully. It's called The Sun is Stranger Than Astrophysicists Imagined. And what they're doing is laying out all the ways the sun does not conform to the current physics model of how the universe is supposed to work, the so-called standard model, including specific details in a universe where things are always supposed to flow from hot to cold, high energy to low energy. Well, around the sun and around every star that we've now looked at with any kind of decent instrumentation, there is this super hot corona. So if the, if the sun's surface is about 10,000 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, the corona above it, just by thousands of miles, is measured at more than 2 million degrees. How in the world does the sun communicate at a low temperature, a super hot temperature, relatively speaking, to the corona just above it, and what maintains this flow in absolute apparent contradiction to the four known laws of thermodynamics? Well... There are more clues. In fact, as you read that piece, at the very end, the writer, I believe he's a physicist, is talking about, do we need to introduce exotic physics to explain the new data that we're seeing? And the answer, guys, is yes! <laughs> anyway, that is the backdrop to tonight's conversation because I'm going to be talking about things that are normally in the realm of the occult, 
the paranormal, the things that go bump in the night, the woo-woo factor, all those pejorative terms. And I'm going to be talking about those effects, those phenomenologies, those events, not in the context of occult or religious perspectives, but in the perspective of a hyper-dimensional physics that makes all those apparent weirdnesses, anomalies, miracles actually possible. In fact, it mandates that they occur or they be able to occur, including consciousness moving between dimensions to reach into our 3D nursery and somehow, in some cases, do something in such a way that the effects here are demonstrably catastrophic. In other words, are we dealing in a multidimensional universe where both benign, positive, and negative entities, negative consciousness can come through, can come across, can transit between these dimensions to influence either for good or for ill what's happening on planet Earth. And in the largest rubric of our evening's conversation, have in fact we been invaded, not by some kind of shoot 'em up Star Wars scenario of colonial battle fleets and, you know, uh, Orson Welles and Martians coming and giant stilted robot legs, but have we in fact been quietly, silently, secretly invaded by what was termed by Walter Pigeon's character in Forbidden Planet? a very important movie, which we'll go through uh, point by point someday, I, I promise, are we in fact experiencing here and now on planet Earth what was termed by Pigeon's character, Dr. Morbius, as monsters from the id, except they're not from our id. Hold that thought. Item number five. We've been following, and one of the trigger points for this conversation um, was the extraordinary, incredible horror of what happened in Uvalde just two weeks ago. Since Uvalde, we have now lost, I have lost track personally of how many mass shootings we have had, defined officially as four people, not counting the shooter, or more killed. Just last week, we had a stunning example happen in uh, Tulsa, and I'll get to that in a minute. Before that, however, if you look at item number five, one of the things which has been really becoming more and more bothersome is the fact that in complete accord with Murphy's Law, everything that could have gone wrong with rescuing those kids in Uvalde went wrong. And item number five is a, uh, a mainstream story on everything the police claimed about Uvalde that has now been debunked, up to and including item number six. I mean, item number six, which is stunning 
first ran on the CBS News the other night, my old alma mater. I then found out, and it was too late for me to get uh, Keith to post it, so maybe during the show he can post it as a new number seven and we move everything else down. There is a um, Washington Examiner story which covers the same incident with the same people and is talking with them from a separate uh, set of interviews. So we now have more than one source. Um, It turns out that there was the woman. Remember the woman outside who was arrested by the police when, as every mother should, she attempted to rush into the school and rescue her children, and they literally flung her to the ground, handcuffed her, and it was only because um, someone in the town knew her really well that, and she promised to be a good girl that they let her up and took off the handcuffs and ultimately did not arrest her. But then she ran around the back, jumped the fence, went in the school, rescued her two kids and reported. And this is really very, very important. Remember how we've been hearing the 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 kind of litany for the last two weeks that initially seven of the local police entered the school and then when they were fired at they backed off because two of them were slightly wounded through the walls through the door with the uh, shooters ak uh, i'm sorry ar-15 and then later that there were 19 of these officers standing around waiting for the technical commander to give the go-ahead to break down the door get rid of the shooter and rescue the kids. Well, we now know from this woman who was in the school, who physically in there rescued her children at the height of the crisis when there were supposedly 19 cops milling around in that hallway, which we've heard about over, over, over again. It turns out from her first-person testimony There were no cops in the school at all. Let me say that again. According to this mother's firsthand report, no cops in the school at all. While the town, the town council, the police department, other authorities, the district attorney, everybody is claiming officially there were 19 cops standing twirling their thumbs in that hallway as those kids were being massacred. What's wrong with this picture? Item number seven. As you're going to hear, the model that I'm working on, which I'm hoping will correlate with my other guest tonight, is that there's some incredibly dark, malign, and I'll put it, I'll hit it on the head, evil influence which is controlling certain events on Earth tonight, right now. And the problem, of course, is to be able to look at this or look at that and say, okay, that's because of that, and that's not because of that. The art form, of course, is always discerning the details. Now, let's look at Ukraine. Look at item number seven. Out of the blue, out of nowhere except in his own head, we see the head of Russia, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, starting a war which is massacring tens of thousands of people with long-range artillery daily, hourly now. And we see him literally in item number seven targeting and smashing 
one of uh, Ukraine's most venerable uh, Roman Orthodox churches. There it is in flames. Is this war in Ukraine, which not only is killing tens of thousands of children, men, women, soldiers, whatever in Ukraine, all unprovoked, is this in fact only a trigger for a much larger catastrophe impending on the horizon if this goes on too long? Because by bottling up through the Black Sea, uh, Ukraine's exports of grain, I mean, Ukraine is one of the world's biggest grain exporters. There are people in Africa, in the Middle East, in other parts of the world who are literally going to starve to death because Ukrainian grain is not available because the Russians have said, as of today, formally, they will not allow any Ukraine grain exports up to and including into Russia, which of course was a major consumer of Ukraine grain, both before, during, and after the Soviet Union's you know existence and then the rise of the independent nation Ukraine. Um, is this, again, not a byproduct, not accidental, but part of the long-range plan to, with this as a catalyst, this war, to ultimately wind up killing millions of people all over the world? And is this part of something so extraordinarily dark, so bizarre, so out of keeping with anything we can imagine that you'd basically say this is an evil plot to create an extraordinary mega-person sacrifice at this particular time. And when I talk about time, we'll get into that probably toward the end of the program because if that's what's going on, the timing with what's going on celestially, which going on hyperdimensionally, which going on cosmically in terms of cycles and when things can happen and port between dimensions and when it's much more. In other words, is all of this part of a grand tapestry of opportunity because you only get this chance to do this horrible set of deeds once roughly every 25,000 years, give or take, when you imprint the entire next cycle. That's part of the hypothesis. Now, as soon as you think nothing can get more bizarre or more evil, let me direct you at item number eight. Item number eight, I just happened to, uh, to run across this this afternoon. There is a doctor, apparently a real doctor, his name is Dr. Kerr, who wants to end all school shootings by doing what he says is the obvious thing. He wants to arm the students. I mean, think about that. He wants to arm the students. How in the world does that make any sense at all? Unless you're, design, you're designing a system which basically is going to throw everything into total chaos because can you imagine being a fourth grader with a Smith & Wesson handgun? I, I mean, it just, just 
the mind boggles that rational people are coming forth with such in absurdities and stupidities. And, and, you know, I'm a wordsmith and I, I've kind of run out of words. So on that note, um, I want to play a little thing here from the Ukrainian National Anthem. We will take a small break and we shall return with our guests because we have a very weighty topic this morning. Are all these increasing bizarrenesses and outright demonstrations of evil, are they in fact not part of humans at all, but something which has been specifically imposed? And if so, how can we change it? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I mean, think about it. We've been living on this planet, we're told, for millions of years. I know from the anthropological record, and I'm sure uh, Ron is going to join uh, in, in that conversation uh, shortly. I know that there is absolute incontrovertible proof that our ancestors, so-called uh, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens sapiens, 
live together. Their, their tenure on Earth overlapped for a significant period of time. And the thing that I remember back, you know, some couple of decades ago when this data was, was uh, proven, was that they, the anthropologists could find no evidence of any systematic warfare between these two very dissimilar ancestors of us. None. So when was warfare, when was possession, when was uh, imperialism, when was colonialism, when were all these, you know, slavery, when were all these, quote, ancient human traits manifest in the archaeological record? Well, actually, they don't seem to go much farther back than maybe six or seven thousand years ago. And is that trying to tell us something? Is that trying to say that maybe this is not these traits, these aberrations, these these tendencies, these overwhelming, you know, faults of being human, that they're not? Are we in fact under the influence, and have not been for a very long time, of something else? That's the question tonight. Has something surreptitiously, secretly, malevolently tried to, in essence, kill us in the crib before, before what? That's going to be part of our discussion too. So let me go to um, uh, the proper page here and begin to introduce my cast of characters for this evening. We've got Ron. Of course, Ron Gerbron is our resident generalist. Uh, as you know, he was raised on a farm in Pennsylvania and um, found out a lot about programmings of education, particularly higher education after attending a famous Quaker school in Pennsylvania. He um, tried to contort himself into attending real serious mainstream college, but gave up on academia and left for travel overseas and real world experience. And through all the time though, he's focused his core attention on our own paleo history, particularly the fact that our history now appears to be um, occupying more than just this one planet. So Ron is present, Ron Gerbron. We also have Jonathan Womack. Now, John's personal story is really interesting. And it's all there on the website, so you can read it. But primarily, John has been an out-of-body experiencer, kind of traveling the hyperdimensional realms between galaxies and dimensions for uh, most of his life. And he has some very interesting, if <clears throat> controversial, uh, experiences that he can relate as well as is well acquainted with the literature and now currently is um, a man of many talents. He's an, um, creates amazing websites. He's working on one for our research right at the moment. Um, he also is, uh, uh, he, he used to work at Harvard as one of the IT people. Um, he, uh, let's see, what else? Oh, John is another generalist. And that are kind of halfway between 3 and 4D. 
um, with the uh, current one being uh, uh, titled The Dolphinius Effect. That's in the Ram IM series. And we're going to be joined in um, about an hour by uh, um, uh, Georgia Lambert. And somewhere along the way, I'm hoping we can pick up um, Bruce Solheim, who was supposed to be here this evening, but apparently because he was going to give us some other extraterrestrial perspectives, somebody doesn't want him part of the show. Anyway, um, we'll sort all this out in the next uh, hour and a half, two hours, three hours, whatever. So without further ado, welcome everyone, everyone who's here, to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Hi there, Ron. John, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Super. And we don't yet have Bruce. Okay. Um, Guys, I want you to take offense at the most outrageous thing I said. And given that John is the experiencer and Ron is the critic, let's have John go first. Yeah. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I'd like to share a personal anecdote involving Ukraine. Ah. Seven years ago, I'm shopping on audiojungle.net where I purchased most of my music for my editing. I downloaded a song I really liked. I spend hours and hours and hours listening. So I download this preview of a song. I don't know where I'm going to use it. I know I'm going to use it someday. So seven years pass. A couple of weeks ago, I'm cutting the trailer for uh, me and Maria Wheatley's project, The Secret History of Stonehenge. Mm. And I have a few thousand songs in my archives. I'm, I'm listening, listening. I finally get toward the end, I, and I hear this song from seven years ago. I, that's the song. <laughs> and so so I imported into Premiere Pro. I'm very focused. I'm working on cutting the chair, and I get a ping from my spirit guide. Stop what you're doing. Find this guy. Tell him this story, what just happened. So I go to look for this guy's uh, name on Audio Jungle, and it's he's no longer there. Oh, my gosh. And, and the song, uh, the title is just like, uh, you know, ambient flow or, you know, just some ambiguous title. And so I'm looking. I, I find the guy's name. It's uh, kind of a Russian-sounding name. And now I'm looking for him on the web, and he's got to have a, there's no website. And I go, oh, this looks like him on Facebook. So I go on Facebook and look at his profile. Sure enough, this is the guy. I found him. So I, I started typing to him. I said, hi, my name is John. And I said, I really like this song. And I downloaded it seven years ago, not knowing when I need it, but... I'm going to use it for this Stonehenge trailer, and I just want you to know how much I enjoy all your other work, too. I just, I really love your work. It's beautiful, great com- compositions. And it turns out, so he writes back to me. It was very emotional because he's in Ukraine. He's Ukrainian. And, oh, my. Uh, oh. Ooh. So he was overwhelmed and uh, just very appreciative that... I sent him this ray of hope. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all connected, and I think part of the, the, the 
one of the, and I, I hate this idea of reasons because I'm not really in the mode of thinking things happen for reasons, but the idea that, you know, in the midst of this incredible catastrophe, this one person reaches through the new sphere, lodges in your brain, connects at the right time to our incredible ancient past, which has been suppressed, as we're going to talk about this evening at some length, I'm sure. And and suddenly this guy has the right piece at the right time and the right place to make the closure of the of, of, of what you're trying to create. I mean, that, that, that's pretty impressive. And it's for the Stonehenge project. And we've been working at Stonehenge with Maria on the ET communication project. So there's a lot of things that kind of came together there for me. Okay. Ron, did I say anything that violated any of your sensibilities tonight? Because if I haven't, I'll just have to try harder, I guess. Mr. Gerbron. Whoops, I unmuted. Yes, no, um, not so far. I'm I'm waiting. They'll happen. Uh, <laughs> I would like to say... I would like to say something on the ancestral track about the Neanderthals and the um, uh, so-called anatomically modern humans. Mm -hmm. I mock that term because this is as ridiculous as UAPs. They decide, the uh, establishment of uh, the ologies decided that they didn't like the term Cro-Magnon, right? Which literally, which literally is a very archaic root uh, form from French that means caveman. Right. Okay, that seems to work. But, yeah, no, they didn't like that because uh, genetically they don't match. They look just like us in every measurable res uh, respect, but a lot of the numbers are different. You know, if you go down to measuring things and calibrating things and uh, analyzing things. And so they said, okay, well, we need something that's more generic than that. And so they came up with uh, AMH or anatomically modern human. Anyway, yes, you're right. They apparently, the two groups apparently got along pretty well. Yes. But that's because in my model, they were in separate camps anyway, and they didn't hang out with each other much, but it doesn't. Yeah, uh, but you can't. The important you, thing you, was. You, oh, hang on, hang on. You don't know that. From every well, you, from every sentient behavior we know, when you have groups, they mingle. They don't stay apart. They don't stay in separate camps. They mingle. Now, do they mingle peacefully, or do they mingle in a in a more warrior fashion? But they mingle. So the idea you have these two genetically separate species on the planet, right next to each other in Europe, and they didn't have organized conflict, and we who are basically the same regardless of who we are, wherever we are on Earth, we are involved in and have been for 6,000 years in methodically developing better ways to kill each other. What's wrong with this picture? Ah, well, let me, let me practice my sinister laugh. <laughs> you fell into my trap. The, uh, <laughs> uh, the reason that they didn't mingle is the same reason that if you um, are breeding pedigreed dogs, uh, you don't let your dogs go out and mingle with the other dogs in the neighborhood. See, you don't know any of that. Uh, it's total supposition. Uh, it, there's no language. Well, there's so no record. There's no nothing. You can't you extrapolate okay. our behavior Wait. to other two species that are not 
intimately related? If they mingled? No, no, no. In the sense that, in the social sense that you're. We know they mingled. You know how we know? There. Did you ever see Close Encounters? Uh, not all the way through. I've only seen pieces of it, but that's not the point. You never. Hang on. Let me finish my point, and then you can come back yeah. and tell, tell me I'm wrong. At the end Eric of Close, okay. at the at the end of, of Close Encounters, there's a close-up. Somehow Spielberg found a Neanderthal walking. Remember how they they used to say you put a Neanderthal on the subway and dressed him in you know a business suit, nobody would notice. Well, nobody noticed mm-hmm. until they did a close-up, and the damn guy was a Neanderthal, meaning genetically they weren't a a an inviolable barrier because you can't have children with genetically people that you can't have children with but they were far enough apart that they looked dramatically different but they still had kids together but they didn't make war like everybody on earth now that we have kids with we also kill them i mean something's wrong with this picture and my model is something recently has intruded designed to keep us at a minimum down on the farm on earth isolated Uh, i'm willing I'm willing to accept that as a um, factor, but uh, to me, it's pretty clear. And you keep saying, "Well, there's no evidence. There's no evidence." Well, there are a few places where you, uh, where there have, there were at some point in the time, catastrophes, cave-ins, uh, the, who knows what, and you find bunches of bones. Right. And uh, the only time that we find. Uh, Neanderthal and modern human stuff mingled together, even though the mainstream is now admitting that they coexisted for practically 400,000 years. Uh, the, uh, it's, they are hybrids, you know, because the one thing that they could do was interbreed perfectly. Now, this is peculiar because there are certain things that, going back to the dog breeding, if you wish, but there are certain things that are a little... Uh, peculiar about the mixture because the shape of the head of the Neanderthals is completely different from the shape of the skull in the modern human. Absolutely. The brain is a different shape. Well, it's even a, yet, it, it, hang on, hang on. Neanderthal even had bigger brains than Cro-Magnon. About right. 1600 well, CC whale, compared mean, to 1400, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, um, the important part is that genetically they were compatible. Now, the other players on that uh, party circuit were, <laughs> as they're currently called, the Denisovans. And I, I'm happy to report that apparently the most widely used mainstream pronunciation of that is Denisovan, Okay, to me seem correct, not Denisovan. But in any case, those <laughs> guys that they didn't, you never even heard about. Who was found uh, by a Russian guy, I think, named Denis, I think. No, 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 no. The bones were found in a cave that was the refuge of a hermit named Denise, who was an uh, uh, who had removed himself from the Russian oh, okay. Orthodox Church and was living down by the river. And it became known as uh, Denise's Cave, or uh, Denise. So it's Denise still the- attached to this one guy, right? Yeah, that's just okay. where the name came from. Yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm happened. saying. That yeah, was the yeah. location. It, yeah, it wasn't. There's no, you know, genetic information in that. I didn't but think the, so. Uh, those guys, no, those guys looked 
as far as we can tell from the few bone few bones that we have uh looked pretty much like us more so than the um wait, 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 wait. i didn't Although i didn't, they didn't I, I i thought we had some teeth maybe a couple of leg bones or whatever but no cranial uh fossils from denisovans right there's a there's a piece of, yeah there's one piece of a skull but there's not a lot of that it's uh yeah we need more but the evidence is that they were um more like us than the Neanderthals, but we got along. Everybody got along just fine, as far as we can tell. Hmm. But there are ver- there are very few traces of any sort of interbreeding between the Denisovans and the modern human strain. Now they do. They did. May they were able to mate with the Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. So what you're looking at is a long-term breeding project with three different gene pools, and actually there's best count so far about five there's a couple we haven't named yet but we know that there's a couple of other strains mixed in there just from okay you you just said the magic you just said the magic phrase and the duck just came down and you're gonna get you know five hundred dollars gosh i wish (laughs) you just mentioned three separate species of a breeding program by whom yeah exactly uh someone other than us obviously The, uh, Your evidence no, for this? And, uh, well, some of the evidence is that all of those groups, and I wish that we could uh, that we had more Denisovan evidence. And I think it's sitting in wooden boxes in the back rooms of museums all around the world, because that's where most of the Neanderthal stuff came from. Mm-hmm. The uh, was it was it wasn't cataloged until later. In fact, it shouldn't even be called. Neanderthal, because you name stuff, there are conventions for this, you name stuff after the place that it's originally found, and it turns out that the there were some uh, Neanderthal remains found in the caves at the bottom of Gibraltar uh, 50 years before. Right. And it was right at the beginning of the 19th century. It was the 1950s, when the, or the 1850s, when they... Um, uh, uh, Found that they accidentally found the um, bones, which started with a skull cap, by the way. Funny you mentioned skulls. The first Neanderthal thing that was found was somebody recognized it as the top of a skull. Uh, and uh, they said, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, the reason they said, whoa, wait a minute, was that it was a quarrying company that was uh, blowing up a cliff, which was mostly good limestone, right. in order to turn it into cement and stuff and they but even in the uh, 1850s if you found human bones uh, you, you had to stop you had to go tell somebody you couldn't just say push it to the side and say no, no, no let's keep blowing stuff up so that's where they found, and it happened to be a skull but we have lots of Neanderthal stuff which means there's a total of maybe 500 skeletons more over the okay, so let's let's uh, we don't have a lot of time. I want to move things kind of down the river here. Um, let's assume mm-hmm. this is some kind of ET breeding program for consciousness, intelligent life on Earth. You've got three competing, maybe five, if I understood you correctly, and then they all go away except one us, right? Well, they all kind of merge, everybody out there knows someone well that is uh that has a good percentage of neanderthal dna i'll give you an easy 
the far head's an easy cheap shot. If somebody has a far head the size of David Boreanaz, uh, the um, <laughs> actor, the uh, their Laura, that's Neanderthal gene, um, genes. But it still doesn't explain how those were able to mingle so effectively. But teeth, Is, you mentioned teeth. Yeah. The, the Neanderthal's teeth are like three times the size of what we think of as normal teeth. So if you have a friend who has lovely teeth, but they're really, really big teeth. Okay, so we're talking just, uh, all right, so, all right, again, details. So, all mingle, some all some people out there freak out when we get into too many details. I don't know why, because details are how you separate no. fact from fiction. But anyway, so we've got three species, maybe That's five, right. and they and they blend together either just because they really love each other or because someone wants them to, and we wind up with one, Okay. What I'm intrigued with... Oh, it's with, very much the second part. Yeah, they were kept separate for most of the time. That's an important but detail. But you don't know that. How can you know yes, that? Yes, you do. How? How? Because you be, because when you find, when you find a Neanderthal place, uh, it's all Neanderthals in there unless they happen to have somebody... But that you was, haven't found you know, the rec have, center. You haven't... Uh, in other words, the number of fossils we have compared to the Earth would fit on almost like a tennis, you know... Table, table tennis well, table. I told you the one there's the most over Neanderthal, and there's five to six hundred uh, skeletons. Yeah, but the point above. is that that uh, does not a statistical sample worth any meaningful assignment at all. Make to say they were kept apart, we have no idea. We know they were coexisting. Well, you know, it only takes coexisting in, in separated groups. I you mean, don't know that, sheep you, Ron. Please. Don't go beyond the data. We don't well, know that. How did they end up there? Then how did they end up in separate valleys? Said, because they like to hang out in those valleys. Somebody may like the view over here as opposed to over there. In yeah. other words, you're, you can't yeah, make well, hard and fast rules. My point is this: we started out many. Not. We started out many. We're now one. We started out many, mm -hmm. very different, and yet we did not systematically try to kill each other until we became one. Just day before yesterday, 6,000 years, and suddenly we're all at each other's throats 24-7. We got 400 million guns in this country alone. We have a runaway freight train that nobody knows how to control, all because suddenly enmity between us, I believe, mm -hmm. was introduced. So are we dealing with two different, here's where I'm going, two different ET yeah. programs, one to develop consciousness on Earth and the other to kill it or at least make it a slave. Yes. Well, I think that's... Hang point. on, hang on, hang I, on. I'm very much... A, I, 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 I'm, I'm hearing... Is that John? I, yeah, I heard another <laughs> I was voice. agreeing yeah, with go you, ahead. Richard. Okay, uh, let, let, let's let John answer because uh, oh, we've laid out some okay. really good foundation here. John? Yeah, there's a popular researcher from England. His name's Michael Hallowell, and he studies and researches jinn and history throughout the various uh, the Bible and all these kind of uh, writings. And here's a quote from him, and I believe this relates to what you said in your intro, Richard, about the 26,000-year cycle. Mm -hmm. And he says, the jinn are coming through portals now in ones and twos, to harass human beings, but the time will come when they will pour through in the thousands and we're all going to have a big problem. And I think we have my item number 11 is a 
a picture of the Hadron Collider, and a lot of people think that is opening a massive portal to allow these beings to come into our reality and have a negative impact on us. See, and I would say, I, I would say that instrumentality is kind of irrelevant because we're dealing with a hyperdimensional physics that doesn't require technology. It's consciousness, but it has to be a pretty high-level consciousness. It's got to have a conduit. The bandwidth between dimensions have to match. Otherwise, you can't go through the gate. It's all frequency-based, and I don't think I think the hadron thing is again another distraction. So no one takes this really seriously. Anyway, that's what makes horse races it's possible. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I. I well, I will say I, something I can agree with. Um, what John just brought up the uh, what I was what I was about to lead to was that you have to consider oral records. You have to consider folklore and myths and scriptures and uh, <clears throat> Zechariah Sitchin translations, all that stuff. That is valid data when you're talking about the social stuff. The stuff about the interbreeding goes back a little further. But someone who could speak expertly, which wouldn't be me, on the uh, uh, Anastasi, um, the, uh, you know, the Hopi Zuni, that, uh, the North American um, Aboriginal stuff, uh, they had a real problem with cannibals. Those were the, uh, they had a big battle between another species or, or race, if you will, that were cannibalistic. And wait, how do we and know this? Although, how do we know this? Well, because they said that, because they said Oh, so, so this is oral tradition. This is oral tradition from these tribes, right? Yeah, backed up by things like they have found dig sites where the bones were gnawed upon. Okay, but my next question ate, is... Ate the person. My next question is, how old are those yeah. folk histories compared to archaeology or anthropology? In other That's words... It's always tricky when it gets to North America. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. They're, they're, they're relatively recent, meaning they could be talking about stuff within the window of the last 6,000 years. See what I mean? Yeah. Well, you could go... Yeah, any... I, I'm, I'm easy there. I just... Anything post the last Ice Age. Because the, <laughs> uh, the Indians... Well, American Indians... I'm sorry, it's a more comfortable term. Uh, are... Uh, they have a different sense of time. Okay, than, hold it uh, there. The, West, the normal Western thing. We are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning so far... Some are missing. Some are here. We've got uh, Ron Gerbrun our resident generalist. We have John Womack, our resident out-of-body and extraterrestrial explorer, is here. George is going to join us in about an hour. Bruce Solheim is missing. Not quite sure why. Um, maybe somebody didn't want us to talk to him tonight because he was going to talk to us about a study group, a current UFO-slash-UAP study group, which is involved in looking at exactly this potential. Gosh, and he's missing. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. Tonight we're trying to grapple with the most amazing idea. Have we been invaded and some of us taken over? We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.